back to Behold the Lion. We're continuing our series on the CC curriculum, Contemporary Civilizations curriculum, where we will be discussing today the Quran and some notes on medieval Islamic philosophy. I'm joined today by Silas again. Hi, everyone. And we're joined by Ben Kelly, who has been on the podcast before and is here today again as the editor-in-chief of The Witness, who is kind of our boss and will be on our good behavior today. <laughs> hey, guys. It's been a while. Okay, so we'll we will proceed with great deference going forward, and uh, we will not we will not <laughs> challenge him in any sense. Uh, okay, so this section of the CC curriculum is interesting because so far we've uh, discussed what a lot of people might term, you know, Western, uh, you know, philosophy, a sort of um, Greco-Roman uh, philosophical tradition, uh, some elements of Judaism and Christianity, and the sort of cartoon or simplistic textbook picture might be this definition of the Western, even of the European or Christian, in opposition to the Muslim or the Middle Eastern. You've got this whole picture of the Crusades as a conflict in the Middle Ages between those sort of religious and you know political, I don't know if we'd call them national yet, entities. Um, but in some ways, the Islamic tradition uh, shares a lot with, particularly on the religious side, um, sort of religious tradition, uh, heritage of Judaism and Christianity. And as far as the philosophical tradition goes, there are surprising threads of continuity where uh, while, you know, the Roman Empire was kind of declining, a lot of things were going on in Europe, a lot of these philosophical threads of uh, Aristotle, Plato, those were picked up in the Islamic world, those were maintained, translated, some things were fleshed out, and then those found their way back to Europe. And uh, they were know, continued to be added to by Thomas Aquinas and others who we will talk about in weeks going forward. But to start with, what is Islam? What are we talking about when we talk about Islam? I mean, that's a, a big debate among um, scholars of Islam, right? Um, for me, I, I defined Islam as um, what Muhammad, um, uh, what Muhammad taught. Uh, and so obviously there's um, the Quran, which is a, a, a huge element uh, of what um, constitutes Islam, but you should also think about the, the Hadith and the Sunnah, uh, which are the, the teachings and the doings of Muhammad uh, as passed down by some of his followers. Um, you will also hear people say that, that Islam is, is essentially Muslims, uh, that anybody who identifies as, as Muslims, um, you know what they do is is Islam, and that incorporates a lot more practice and tradition and, and ideas, um, and it is better at accounting for the diversity of thought within Islam, which is incredibly broad. Um, but I think it's most helpful to think of Islam as, as what Muhammad taught, as far as we can get to it. Yeah. Okay. So certainly, uh, Islam is a very broad topic. It's a whole religious tradition that we will not cover in any semblance of great depth in today's episode. But yes, a good way of thinking about it, and frankly, the way that uh, CC might encourage us to think about it, is as centered around certain texts, particularly the Quran. Uh, Islam the, gives us this notion of people of the book, right? Uh, this is how they would refer to, or Muslims might refer to, you know, Jews and Christians as, you know, being, uh, ha having some reference to sort of the textual tradition, the biblical tradition, as we might call it. Um, so this notion of the text is very important, right? So for some historical context, we are now talking about the 7th century uh, AD. Um, I believe the first revelation said to have been given to Muhammad was da is dated to around 610 or thereabouts. 
I could be wrong on that, but around the early, early 7th century. And uh, the Quran then, uh, the central text of Islam, is a series of revelations uh, said to have been given to uh, the Muslim prophet, Mo the Islamic prophet Muhammad, uh, over the ensuing years. And it's spread. Does, uh, does one of you want to give us a synopsis of sort of that revelation, that, that history as it develops? Yeah, gladly. So just like you said, 610 is about the, the date that scholars have pinned Muhammad's initial revelation. Uh, and there's a very famous story about that, right, of Muhammad um, having grown up as a monotheist his whole life in contrast to sort of the, the polytheist culture of um, Arabia at the time. Um, and uh, he was persecuted, right, for his monotheism. It was, it was a big deal to be a monotheist in Mecca, the city where he lived. It was a big trading city. Um, and it was a big trading city because it was a, it was a center of, of polytheism. And people from all around the region would gather in Mecca to worship their various gods. And so to be a monotheist was to threaten the source of, of prosperity in the city where he was living. Uh, and additionally, Muhammad uh, was a traitor. So this was uh, especially problematic for him. Um, so he was persecuted for his monotheism. He um, goes essentially on a spiritual retreat in this cave in the nearby mountains. Uh, and while he's there, the angel Gabriel appears to him uh, and orders him to, to recite. Uh, he says, I can't, I'm illiterate. And you know, the angel Gabriel shakes him again and says, you will recite. Um, and he says, I, I cannot, I'm illiterate. And Gabriel shakes him one more time and says, in the name of God, recite. And then Muhammad starts to recite this beautiful poetry. And we can get more into that story and, and some of the um, actual accounts of it. The narrative that you typically hear actually comes a little bit later. Um, but that, that's the standard story given. And so that was in 610 AD. He goes back home um, to his, his very wealthy wife, um, Khadija, uh, and she uh, basically says that she thinks he's a prophet, right? And so for the next 22 years, he sort of is kind of like discerning his role in this ministry. And he, he has some teachings like to his family and to his wife, um, but kind of just keeps going with life as is until 632 um, when he then becomes um, a prophet in, in fullness, right? And so for the next seven years or so, um, seven to 15, something like that, uh, he re receives continuous revelation from God. And that that is the Quran, right? The Quran is essentially just a collection of sayings from God that are given to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. Um, and he will recite them wherever he is, whatever he's doing. Um, and then they're written down by, by scribes and followers. Um, and we can trace um, the history of Muhammad from his time in Mecca. Eventually he was persecuted out of Mecca because he of course became more and more controversial as he preached this very strong Islamic monotheism. Um, he eventually left with some followers and moved to Medina uh, where he uh, grew in, in popularity and power, um, sort mm. of ruling over them as a judge. And that's the date for the start of the Islamic calendar. That's right. The correct? Islamic calendar starts with um, the flight from Mecca to Medina. Um, that's uh, the, the Hejri calendar. Um, and he will eventually return to Mecca as a, as a conqueror. Um, and then in the last few years of his life, he takes over uh, most of the Arabian Peninsula. And it's his um, immediate friends and family who will establish the, the earliest caliphate, which is uh, huge. So that's sort of the founding, uh, the founding narrative of Islam. That's sort of the context for the Quran. Just based on that first, we've talked about some other religious texts uh, in this, uh, in, in as part of this uh, contemporary civilization curriculum. How does the Quran, the account of the, you know, Quran differ, or how is it similar to, you know, the say the Gospels or some of the biblical texts we've looked at? Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, a lot of factors at play. I think the Quran very intentionally and 
very intentionally much of Muhammad's ministry was seeking to emulate the monotheistic tradition as he perceived it of Judaism and later Christianity. And so even the idea of being a prophet, having this prophetic tradition that he's part of, that he's adding to, is <coughs> leading into a perception of aligning himself with the Old Testament prophets. And so it's it's very intentionally built around that and referential to that. I mean, like you said before, you're talking about the idea of the people of the book, which perceives uh, – the Hebrew or Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran almost as one continuous text or one continuous story. The book and all those who follow it, no matter what level of that they believe or accept, whether they're Jewish, Christian, or, or Muslim, are all members of this grouping that can be classified as people of the book. And so Muhammad's playing to that. Very interesting is the fact that he's illiterate and that it's very much starts as an oral thing, um, which prophecy in the Old Testament did, but a lot of it was written down very immediately. One interesting thing with Muhammad uh, is that a lot of his, especially his earlier prophecies, were not immediately written down. They were kind of kept around and recited by himself later and then different friends and followers. And so they're almost um, in the early years of Islam was almost an oral tradition prior to a actual writing of it. So it definitely starts as this kind of adjacent referential tradition and then um, eventually kind of develops into a more unique thing as it goes. So. Yeah, and that's a, that, I mean, that's a fascinating history to look into. Um, the word Quran um, means recitation. It's not an Arabic word. It's a Syriac word. It's a liturgical word. Um, every religion would have had the Quran uh, in Muhammad's time. And so when you hear Christians reciting the gospel out loud, that's Quran. When you hear Jews reciting Torah, that's Quran. When you hear Zoroastrians or whoever, right, using their um, uh, their sacred text in, in worship, that is all Quran, right? It's, it's spoken and it's liturgical, right? And you'll hear the Quran talk about books, and, and that's the same way, right? A book is not written in, in Muhammad's time. In fact, there is almost no writing in Arabic before Islam. Um, it is uh, essentially a pre-literate culture. We have a few epitaphs, right, we, on graves in, in Arabic and sort of like a proto-script, um, but there are no records of there being any books or any written poetry or, or anything like that until after Islam. And so Muhammad was very much inhabiting a culture that would have conceived of all of these things as being spoken. Uh, it would not have been considered necessary to write things down. And if you look at how the Quran treats written texts, it very much treats them as actually dispensable. Um, so the Quran existed purely in um, spoken form for a few decades after Muhammad's death. And it would um, be codified for the first time by Uthman. And, and there's a whole um, whole thing to get into with that. Um, but I think interestingly, right, is that um, Muhammad is how Muhammad sort of situates himself in, in the cultures of the time, right? Uh, he, like I said, was a trader and traveled all across the region, and um, Arabia is known to have a pretty extensive... That's trader with a D and not with an I-T, just yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, he was a trader to the Meccans. Um, yes, in their eyes. Um, but yeah, he would have engaged extensively with um, Jewish texts, and uh, he is also um, said to have been associated with certain um, uh, Christian heretics as well, uh, and spend some time studying with them. And you'll see that reflected um, in the text, where the Quran will quote um, 
uh, Gnostic Gospels, right? Or it will um, quote like Jewish traditions, right? And it will incorporate all of these things as um, scripture, right? And very much um, Muhammad saw himself as within this Judeo-Christian uh, tradition. And he will continually reference um, figures like Moses and Jesus and Abraham as being predecessors of himself. Um, and you'll also see whole chapters of the Quran dedicated to biblical figures like Jonah or Joseph, right? Who, um, or David, right? It even retells the story of the Annunciation of Christ, right? And it actually affirms um, that Mary was a, a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Um, but it also, at the same time, attempts to, to manipulate some of that tradition, right? Again, bringing in some, some Gnostic teachings, but also affirmatively rejecting um, the divinity of Christ. There's a passage in which um, it appears that the Quran um, believes that Mary and Jesus both claim to be part of the Trinity. Um, and there is a passage in which Mary and Jesus deny that they are part of the Trinity and that God is mm -hmm. one. Um, and there, it will also reject the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ explicitly. Um, right. And there's interesting theology to get into with that. Right. We'll talk more about the uh, Quranic view of Christ uh, in, in, in a minute. I think to the point about recitation then the, that you made, it's, it's very interesting too that to this day in the Islamic world, there's a very strong culture of memorization of the Quran, of recitation of it. And if you listen to it, it's, it's almost a musical practice the way it's, uh, the way it's done. Um, and yes, uh, to Silas's point, this idea of standing within a prophetic tradition, one of the points I was trying to get to and asking, you know, how does, say, the Quranic view of itself, of inspiration, stand uh, in relation to, say, some of the um, Christian or Jewish biblical texts we've talked about. And yes, I would say very much so that uh, whereas we have, for instance, the Gospels or Exodus, which these are... Um, historical chronicles. These are attempts at telling a life that uh, within the Jewish and Christian tradition, there's a strong attempt to negotiate, you know, this is through a human writer. These are the words of a human writer, but they're also divinely inspired in some sense to be preserved from error. They're not necessarily dictated by God, right? Um, now, within the Bible itself, we have instances where, say, uh, this kind of direct speaking by God might be stronger or, you know, it might be more of a human speaking as in the uh, uh, prophetic works, right? The prophetic works where a prophet might explicitly say, this is the word of the Lord and go on to, to speak. But this, this notion of inspiration and, you know, how, how God and uh, how the Bible exists as both a human and a divine text is something that's very much negotiated within the Christian tradition. Whereas in the Islamic tradition, uh, as far as I'm familiar with it, the Quran is regarded as the dictated word of God. This even extends to a sort of linguistic exclusivity. The Quran was given in Arabic, and this makes translation of the Quran sort of a falling away from its initial perfection. Uh, the Quran is translated, but uh, it's, it's regarded as being in its truest form in Arabic, uh, where from, again, in the, in the Christian tradition, there's less of a concern over the translatability of, of biblical text. From the very beginning, there's a strong culture of biblical translation. So that's one of the things we're negotiating here. And the Islamic tradition, as uh, Ben, you pointed out, Muhammad interacted with uh, certain Christian heretics. We believe there was a Christian sect that did regard the Trinity as consisting of God the Father, of Mary, and of Christ, which might explain why uh, certain parts of the Quran seem to think that's, uh, that's just standard Christian teaching. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the Islamic tradition will look back 
at, say, the Christian tradition and say those texts became corrupted, those traditions surrounding Christ became uh, corrupted from what they originally were, from what they originally had to say. Um, so yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Gospels and the figure of Christ in them. How does the Quranic picture of Christ, uh, you know, w in which ways is it similar and in how does it differ from, from that the picture of Christ we get in the New Testament? I mean, I, I think um, the, the picture that you get, I would say it, it's fairly different. Um, and my reason for saying that is that it doesn't sketch out who Jesus is that much, except for where it disagrees uh, with standard Christian teaching. Um, and so you do get a, a sort of reverence for Christ. Um, anytime it talks about Jesus, it is with a reverence, and it does affirm him as one of the um, greatest prophets. In fact, it, at one point, it does say that Christ is without sin. Um, in that passage, um, basically all the prophets are, are lined up before God. Uh, and God is interrogating them on Judgment Day, and every single one confesses to sin, except for Jesus, um, who has nothing to confess. Um, but uh, outside of that, uh, almost every passage about Christ I is a denial of his divinity in some way. And that's a huge problem for Christians, obviously, right? But um, so much of the Quran, is, you know, even when it's not talking about Jesus, is very strongly anti-Trinitarian. Um, and that was a big concern of Muhammad. Um, so what you get from the Quran is essentially that Jesus was a prophet. He was a great prophet, maybe even a sinless one, but he was just a prophet. You'll see over and over again, I was just a prophet. I never claimed to be anything more. Um, and so that, that seems to be the Quran's main concern. Of course, it disputes some historical details like his crucifixion and resurrection. It also adds some from, uh, sources like the gospel of Thomas, right? About him turning clay birds into real pigeons when he's a child. Um, but I'd say, I'd say by and large, uh, the point of the chronic depiction of Jesus is actually just to dispute Christianity. I think as a whole, one of the chief, if not the chief concern of Muhammad is his diehard stance on monotheism. I mean, like you were saying, he's monotheistic prior to the formation of Islam as a religion or uh, any of his prophecy. And all of it is kind of built around a confirmation of that the idea that the Lord is one is so core to Islamic belief. Um, but it is interesting, their treatment of, yeah, of Jesus, of the entire biblical text as a whole. Um, the strong emphasis on the non-divinity of Christ is built around an emphasis uh, on the fact that God is one. The idea that a trinity could exist in Muhammad's mind is very much a declaration of polytheism. There are three gods. And sure, maybe they relate to each other, but they are three gods in his mind. And because of that, his dire sense against Christ's divinity is seen as his attempt to protect the monotheistic idea. One of the biggest sins in Islam is shirk, correct? This is this attempt to add to, to the one God, uh, which Trinitarianism would be seen as an instance of that. That's right. So um, shirk is the... Um, it's the addition of partners to God, as the Quran defines it. Um, in fact, when the Quran goes out of its way to define shirk, it's doing so in response to Christianity and to Trinitarian theology again. Um, and, and shirk is so bad in Islam, right, that that passage says that's the one sin that God will not forgive. So all those who are committing shirk um, do go to hell, right? So that, that is a, a clear condemnation of, of Christians in that passage. Um, and just to, to build off that and to show... Um, how much Muhammad um, 
you know, really values this, this strict monotheism. Um, I, I want to read a, a surah. This is surah 112, known as Ikhlas, um, which just means purity, right? Um, but it, it just reads like this. It's very short. In the name of God, the Lord of mercy, the giver of mercy, say, he is God the one, God the eternal. He begot no one, nor was he begotten. No one is comparable to him. That short of a surah, that, that's a tiny surah. It's one of the shortest in the whole book. This is a, a long book. Um, but the hadith record that Muhammad says that this one surah is equivalent to one third of the Quran. If there's anything that you should be getting from Islam, it is this one sentence. Um, and you can even hear in the in the phrasing of that, it's almost a direct response to John 1, right? It is a rejection that there is a begotten son of God, is a rejection that God and the word are one. Um, it, it's, um, it's incredibly important. This is paramount if you're a Muslim. Right, and, and that language should also ring a bell to people familiar with the Christian creeds. There was an interesting podcast series on those creeds some time ago, uh, which, which you know uh, one could listen to were one so inclined. Um, but yes, this language of begetting, we talked at some length about that as, as we were going through the creeds for, for this podcast. And yes, that, that surah, by specifically saying God does not beget anyone, seems like a direct response to, to this notion. You'll find a, a, a lot more in that, too. The Quran uh, really hammers this concept home, right? And you'll find over and over again, it says, God does not have a son. God does not have a son. God has no children. Um, and it in that, like, sweeps in with it the language in the Bible about um, human beings being made in the image of God or, or being children of God in some capacity. Um, you'll find that uh, most Muslims will very strongly condemn that kind of language because the Quran condemns that kind of language. Um, the Quran does not have a, a sort of familial view of God at all. It, it explicitly rejects it. Right, and even to that language of images, right? The Christian world, er, within a couple centuries, is having this intense kind of inner conflict with itself over the appropriate, uh, whether it's appropriate to use icons in uh, church buildings. Uh, there's the whole iconoclastic controversy where certain uh, groups of Christians think that to use images is tantamount to idolatry and others think that it's an acceptable way of venerating you know, the person or even Christ through that image because Christ himself was God made into a particular image. And this is uh, a debate that in some ways still continues in the Christian world to this point. Uh, but Islam is very strongly um, opposed to any use of images in worship. And uh, there's, a, there's a conflicted relationship with visual art that does develop, but for the most part, as far as worship goes, I mean, you'll see calligraphy in mosques. You'll see that, but again, we have this kind of uh, strong emphasis on the text, on the, on the Quran itself, on like the, the word as opposed to, as opposed to the image. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, two really interesting points built off those ideas. Uh, that's just interesting to see how it's developed in the tradition of Islam. Um, firstly, just this strong emphasis around the idea of God's oneness has become very much conflated with the level of dedication and uh, focus around that divine in um, Islamic culture. Um, even something like uh, the Shahada, there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is a prophet, which is, es especially in very religious Muslim countries, is spoken to the ear of a newborn child and is the last thing someone says as they're dying breath. It's meant to be bookmarks of your life, the idea that there is no God but God, that he is one, um, and that your conception of him comes from Muhammad. But the idea that God is one, that he is this singular point of all power, 
essentially informs the way that they view life. In, a, in the Muslim conception, there's a very strong idea about the oneness of God as the ultimate source of power in the universe. And therefore, nothing ought to matter other than him. And so religion becomes the absolute informing practice throughout all your life. No matter what you're doing, it comes first, and it informs it completely. And it's like, even to the degree that the religious fervor around this is something that I think Christians could learn from. Additionally, the uh, strong going away from imagery, um, this is more of a side note, but like how you're saying calligraphy, you see in mosques. It's really interesting just to see how like that idea has led to a proliferation and a growth of calligraphy in um, Arabic as this very, very, very um, high art form. And just seeing how these theological beliefs can completely inform the culture, the humanities, the art, and even the worldview and bookends of life within a culture as it progresses. Yeah. And so I'm curious, uh, we'll talk more about different aspects of the Quran right after this, but um, since we've been stressing this notion, as the Quran stresses it, of the oneness of God, especially coming to this as Christians, why does this matter, right? Uh, I mean, especially, you know, um, within certain branches of Protestant Christianity, we could be like, yeah, certainly God is one. Certainly we shouldn't use images in worship or set something uh, equal to God. We can get behind can get behind that but what difference i mean does it make to affirm that god is one and then to add that he is not like three persons also yeah i mean for a christian it, it makes all the difference in the world right um obviously the the bible is is predicated on the notion right that um it was not just um a good man who who sacrificed himself for us but w it was god himself right that as human beings we are uh sinful and and not capable of, of living a sinless life and so not capable of being redeemed, right? And even if I were to live a sinless life, that would be um, great for me and I could go heaven, but, you know, what right do I have to, to save all of humanity? Um, but God being God and, and so much greater than us, right, and giving up so much more is able to, to cover for and atone for our sins, right? And so you see just this incredible sacrifice, right, where Christ enthroned in heaven, right, says that um, this perfect... Uh, existence, right, it is not worth as much as being with those that I love. And so he comes to earth. He's born into absolute humility, or um, right, just being born to um, a, a mother who was considered an adulterer, right? And, and Joseph is the same, right? I mean, this culture, right, the fact that uh, Mary gets pregnant before she's married says a lot about who she is and, and her character. Um, but then the fact that um, Joseph doesn't then choose to divorce her tells everybody that she was uh, committing adultery with Joseph, right? So he's born to two parents who are outcasts. Uh, he's born to complete poverty to these small teenagers, right? Um, well, at least one of them's a teenager. Um, and then grows up as a, as a carpenter, right? Um, making his way in the world with, uh, again, not much. Um, before he is um, comes into the ministry, he's rejected by his hometown, he's persecuted wherever he goes, and yet at the same time, his teachings start to take hold because they're beautiful, because they're the fulfillment of these scriptures. Um, and eventually, you know, comes to a point at the climax of, of the Gospels where um, Christ is, is crucified for um, his teachings, right, for angering the religious leaders of the day. Um, and the, the death on the cross is truly the most painful thing conceivable and humiliating and, and just 
horrible in, in every single way. Um, but Christ endures all of that for, for our sake, um, counting himself as, as um, just, uh, you know, as uh, less than in the sense that um, it's worth sacrificing his life to save all of ours when we're so broken. And so the, the magnitude of that, of God coming to earth and offering himself for us, it, it makes the Christian message what it is. I think uh, Islam stands on a, a fundamental misunderstanding of the Trinity, right? Um, Christ Christianity is not a, a polytheistic religion. It is a monotheistic religion. And I think as Christians, we need to do a better job of articulating why that is and what exactly that means, right? So the Trinity is essentially the teaching that God is uh, one in being, but three in person, right? Um, so you to sort of figure out what that means, right? I have to ask myself both what I am and who I am. What I am is a human being. I'm a distinct human being that is not any other. Um, and who I am is Ben. Uh, and that I happen to be one person and one being. Um, but for God, it's different. Mm -hmm. God is one God, but he is three persons, right? There are three answers to that who question. And so I can't tell you what that must mean experientially. There's some things to, to talk about in the Bible, but it's, it's difficult to sort through. Um, but it's philosophically consistent, right, to say that God is one being and, and three persons and that that's a monotheistic position. Yeah, yeah. Those who, until we release uh, videos alongside the podcast, we'll just have to take our word for it that Ben is in fact a human being sitting in this room with us right now. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but but we we will affirm that, and we have two witnesses, uh, unless Silas differs. But um, I yeah, I I I would assume that he is. I don't have direct proof though. Okay. Uh, but yes, to this point about uh, what difference does this make, I think first of all, right, to this notion of um, salvation, right, as unless, uh, unless I'm getting this wrong, the Islamic view is that in the end, uh, one's you know, life is essentially a tallying up of works, correct, of um, good works done versus evil that is done, um, which would make salvation, right? Which would make, you know, entrance to the afterlife or whatever it is, a question essentially of human work, a question essentially of, uh, you can't have certainty. Uh, you're kind of trying to figure out um, what you've, you know, whether you're good enough or bad enough. And in some ways this puts a lot of pressure on us. And in other ways, it also kind of minimizes the uh, depth of the human condition, right? Uh, whereas Christianity would maximize, so to speak, the depth of the human condition, which is to say that if we fall short of an infinite standard, if our relationship with God is broken, then it doesn't really matter how good we think we are, right? How, how well we might act according to a human standard. Our problem is greater than that. And our problem, as Ben said, needs to be solved by God himself, you know, taking on the human condition, going through it without sin, being humbled, uh, experiencing you know the the worst consequences of human sin death pain and suffering separation from god and then defeating that that's the that's the victory that's the gospel um that is proclaimed within christianity the other thing too with the trinitarian notion and this is how i've heard it explained before is that right silas as you were saying this emphasis on the oneness of god and his utter separation from anything in creation um makes him the center of power but it doesn't necessarily make him the center of love, right? Whereas uh, it says in First John that God is love, that something about God fundamentally is bound up with love. Love doesn't usually work in a um, purely solipsistic, self-directed way. But with this notion of the Trinity means that God has been loving, has been a relational God for all of eternity, 
and that human beings, that all of creation, the reason God creates is out of an overflow of love. And the point of redemption is to draw human beings into the dance of love. That is, that is the Trinity. Um, what this means for, you know, culture, what this means for, you know, the development of uh, different theories of art and things like that, that's a, that's a much longer that's a much longer discussion, but I do think it's interesting and important to um, talk about, you know, what this conception of God might mean in, in different ways. Um, but the Quran, you know, that is a big part of its emphasis. Another part of its emphasis is also bringing in line some social reform, some uh, bringing s sort of a standardized order to these polytheistic uh, tribes that they're dealing with. And as, uh, you know, Islam expands, uh, we get this notion of this new unity. There's there's a concept I might venture of Arabia in a way that there hadn't been uh, before of an Arab world that there hadn't been before. Uh, any points to raise about that? About you know uh, interesting things that stood out from the Quran on that level um, from when we were reading it. Yeah. So I think I mean the political implications of the Quran are, are difficult to to parse out because it is very closely intertwined with a, a political and social order. Um, but it's not always super explicit about about what that means, um, although I think it would have been well understood a at the time just through the, the behaviors and actions of Muhammad. Um, but certainly, like, a big part, especially of Muhammad's early ministry, is social reform, right? Um, Muhammad um, grew up as an orphan, right, before being um, brought into his uncle's family and raised by his uncle for, for most of his life. Uh, and so he has a lot of compassion, actually, for for widows and, and orphans, and I think that comes through, and you'll see that in um, Islamic teachings like Zakat, right, one of the five pillars of Islam, in which Muslims give 2.5% um, of their income to, to charity. Um, now, 2.5%, you know, if, if you're um, making the comparison to tithing, um, that's an apt comparison. It's more or less the Muslim equivalent, but I will say um, that when we say that we tithe 10% of our income, um, we take a little bit narrower definition than um, when Muslims say they give 2.5% of their income. And they would probably say they give 2.5% of everything they own every single year. Um, and they also usually give more than 2.5%. Um, so, uh, it, you know, it is a very generous culture, in fact. Um, and, Mo and Muhammad does seem to have a heart for those people. Um, now, as his ministry progresses, right, he seems to um, lose uh, sort of an interest in, in that kind of social reform, and you're going to find some troubling passages in the Quran. Um, there are passages that um, make statements about how you should um, beat your wife. Um, there are There is a passage that abolishes adoption. Um, but more broadly, right, like looking at the um, narrative of Islam, um, it does become much more concerned with, with politics, right? And so when Muhammad flees Mecca to Medina, um, he enters Medina as a, a judge, essentially, and establishes a new political order in that city. Kind of comes at the right time, right, where you've got all these feuding Jewish clans and Arab tribes, and um, they, they need somebody who can bring order. And so they like Muhammad because he's an outsider, but because he has religious connections to the Jews and ethnic connections to the Arabs. So they invite him to come and be judge over the city. And he establishes sort of a, a state over them. Uh, and then, you know, later on, he's going to enter... Medina as a, as a, or uh, Mecca as a conqueror, having essentially conquered Medina uh, slowly over time. And then he's going to expand more or less an empire over um, the, uh, over the rest of the peninsula. Um, but I wouldn't say that this is to create um, a sort of empire in the way that we think of it today, right? And um, I would think that Islam, in the eyes of its earliest adherents, 
um, is, is actually just an Arab religion. And so when they were creating a state, it was a state essentially ruled by, by an elite class of Arabs. Um, but there was not really any moves to um, homogenize or to bring in outside groups. Uh, the, the doctrine that Islam is a universal tradition actually emerges about a century later among some of the clerical classes that then have to essentially fight the state um, to get this uh, uh, theologically established. Um, but if you look at how the Quran um, treats these different groups, right, it continually says that it is directing itself towards the Arabs, right, that every other people has had a prophet, right, and it's going to be really explicit about this when it comes to the Jews and the Christians, and we'll say, people of the book judge by the Torah, judge by the gospel. You have been given these things so that you can be rightly guided. At no point does it make any attempt to say, like, the Quran is for you, judge by the Quran. Um, although it will at some point make statements about how you should submit to Muslims, and um, there's an extensive conversation I have about the history of that, too. But it, it seems to be accepted in the Quran that the Torah and the gospel are, are just as legitimate as the Quran itself, and that we should actually be adhering to those things if we are not Arab. Right. So basically, uh, over the centuries, we get a fairly extensive um, Islamic swath of the world. It goes from the Middle East to North uh, Persia, you know, North Africa, into Spain, uh, at some points into southern France. And, uh, you know, we have this whole region of Spain, Andalusia, which for a long time was a place where Christians, Muslims and Jews interact. It's a center of scholarship. Um, and uh, yeah, what the the fruits of this uh, has been observed? Um, this empire, this this part of the world, is relatively tolerant, at least toward Jews and uh, Christians. It's not not so much toward toward polytheistic uh, uh, people, but uh, um, toward them. I mean, there's a tax imposed on on those populations, but uh, there's there's not necessarily uh, outright persecution as there might have been in certain parts of the Roman Roman period. Um, and again, we get centers of scholarship in particularly, um, we get the, the different empires. Baghdad becomes a major center of scholarship and learning. We get a lot of um, uh, scholars around there, not just Muslim scholars, also Christian scholars, Jewish scholars. We get a lot of manuscripts uh, that end up there, libraries and universities. And so all this is going on while, again, the Western Euro Roman Empire has fallen. Europe is a bit fractured. They're trying to figure things out again. It's kind of funny to read documents from this period, and they'll talk about how there's this weird kind of jutting out portion of, of, of the world where people speak Latin and are kind of uh, kind of not very bright. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so we have this kind of flourishing of culture in, in the Islamic world for, for several centuries. And out of this comes uh, a very interesting uh, philosophical tradition um, that, uh, you know, can kind of, there's a spectrum of views that come to be embraced. Some scholars will look at different things, you know, try to use um, reason, revelation. We have a flourishing of science, and uh, in the Quran there are multiple portions that say consider, you know, look at the natural world. This is how God speaks in some way as well. Um, so science flourishes, but some of these philosophers will look around and then they'll come to the conclusion that only revelation, only divine revelation is a sure source of knowledge. Others will t pick up strands of the Greek philosophical tradition that have come to them and will try to incorporate that into, into um, a coherent system. There's a couple things going on. We've got Averroes or Ibn Rushd. Uh, you know, Averroes is sort of the, the, the Latinized version of his name. Uh, we get different scholars like uh, him who, who become... Um, major uh, sort of translators and uh, contributors to the Aristotelian, often called peripatetic tradition uh, that will be taken up by um, 
Thomas Aquinas, which who we'll discuss uh, next week. Um, but uh, I think one particularly interesting text from this period. Also, we uh, there are there are advances in medicine that are that are significant optics as well. But I think a particularly interesting text is Ibn Tufail's Haidin uh, Yaksan, which is this very interesting fable about um, well a feral child or a child who gets raised by a gazelle on a desert island, and this is a very interesting idea that human beings that this human being at least can sort of reason upward right be raised among animals realize there's something different about him than about them start reasoning to the existence of a soul look up to the world look up to the sky around him and figure that the heavenly bodies are perfect right there's this very platonic ideas about the circle or the orb being the perfect shape this kid will spin around in circles uh, because and and there's a connection to be made there but there's a spinning around in circles to this kind of perfect motion right there's this sort of reasoning upward this chain of reasoning to get to god um to get to the god as the one sort of the platonic good there's a lot going on with this kind of the adoption of platonism within the islamic tradition and in some ways i would argue that i mean christians took up a lot of platonism as well but i would argue that the strict monotheism of islam plays a little better with with the one good of, of Platonism perhaps than than um, than the Christian Christian tradition would I think uh, yeah, I think Islam has a has a complicated relationship with Platonism certainly um, Averroes is extremely prominent in in the Arab world and um, there's a, a quite a long history of of Aristotle and um, Plato's text being preserved um, in Arabic right until they were sort of rediscovered in Europe in the medieval era through those Arabic texts, right, and through the um, the uh, El Andalus and the, the Arab state in, in Spain that Arashir described. Um, but, you know, I think I Islamic theology in some ways lends itself to Platonic in interpretations and in some ways doesn't, right? Um, I mean, I Islam, as we've discussed, touched on a little bit, right, um, is very big on this notion, right, that there is this, like, one form, right, that is God, right, who is the essence of all perfection, right? God has a hundred names. You can basically ascribe anything to him. It's like he's the complete fulfillment of these things, right? And you, when you see those on earth, they're sort of uh, partial reflections of that. And that idea um, sort of seems, seems to lend itself uh, very neatly to uh, Platonism. But on the other hand, um, there's a, a division between God and the world that I think is very important in Islam and that um, doesn't um, fit as well with the Platonic um, tradition, right? In that God is seen as, as very much separate from the world. Um, and this is going to play into why Islamic art is so big on calligraphy, um, right? It's because um, these human forms are, are in no way are they going to be able to represent God. God is completely separate from that kind of thing. Additionally, you shouldn't even try um, in Islamic theology because that would be taking on some of God's roles um, as, as the creator and, and imitating him in a way that's considered unacceptable. Um, whereas Platonic thought actually would probably encourage you to try and imitate that form. Um, but that's going to also play into the theology of the Messiah, right? Where one of the points that the Quran makes is that um, God would never humble himself to come to earth. That would be humiliating. Um, he can't do that um, because, and there's a good reason that the world is separated from him, right? Which, again, that's the Christian point exactly, right? That it was humiliating, right? And that one of the things that we believe is so incredible about Christianity is that God crosses that divide uh, and builds a bridge to us. 
Um, but that's why you get things like um, uh, iconoclasm in, in Islam and an emphasis on calligraphy, right? Because that's the only way that God has actually directly revealed himself to us. So let's play with those words more. Um, and it, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting interaction there. But there's, there's probably a reason why um, Platonic thought did not um, stick around in, in Islamic thought, right? And you get sort of this um, descriptive tradition that emerges as opposed to um, the analytical tradition that um, Plato and Aristotle would fall more into, or maybe a school of thought is a better word than tradition. Yeah, I mean, you've got figures like Al-Farabi as well, who does write a book about the ideal state that is, you know, in some ways quite similar to to ideal states you've talked about so far, so far in CC. But uh, yeah, we see sort of these ideas flourishing. We see, uh, and, and th they continue to be influential in some ways. Some of them are less so, as Ben described. But yeah, there's a whole tradition that goes on here that is not quite discussed. And were we even to focus on sort of um, the border area, we might say, between, say, the Greek-speaking world and the Muslim world, you know, the Byzantine Empire and the Islamic world, there is a very long and complex history of that. The CC curriculum does not allow us to go into that depth, is not focused on that border area. But what we will see instead, again, next week we'll be talking about Thomas Aquinas, uh, this figure who um, is often seen as one of the greatest Christian philosophers uh, for successfully integrating sort of the Aristotelian tradition with the Christian tradition. Uh, and he will have read the works of, of Arois uh, through their translations into, into Latin. He's directly responding both to Aristotle and to Averroes before him. So as far as genealogy goes, that's one way to think about the connections of all these texts uh, on, on the curriculum. Any closing thoughts? I think that um, it's just interesting the role that the Quran plays within the CC curriculum, um, especially since there's a strange uh, perception and existence of Islamic thought and culture as this almost Western adjacent or like Western but on the border um, world. But it also does, like you were saying, have a fair amount of interchange and um, academic uh, back and forth, even with different European traditions that we're going to be reading. Um, a lot of medieval thought was heavily influenced um, by different Islamic traditions. Uh, a lot of the um, scholars of the scholastic movement um, in the whole, um, a lot of these like just different uh, Dominican order uh, scholars, um, people like Peter Lombard and uh, his um, writings um, do play on uh, some of the ideas they have from Islamic scholars. So while it isn't maybe the core conversation that we might see carried out throughout the rest of the CC curriculum, it does play a crucial role within it all and has an adjacent conversation going on that's useful to study. Um, and because of that, as we're trying to look at these texts through a Christian lens. It's interesting to hold this in the back of your head of this is a way that a different religion, an adjacent religion, has emerged and used these same ideas in a different way. And while we're looking at this from this Christian tradition, which is a great practice to do, there are other religious traditions that are doing similar things. And so um, it's just, I, don't, I don't know what to make of that, but it is an interesting thing to consider moving forward. Yeah, I, I enjoy reading the Quran after sort of the biblical text, and especially Romans, as, as a text that 
um, asks a lot of these same questions, but then gives a slightly different answer, right? So what you do with a religion that places the emphasis on, on works instead of um, faith, right, for salvation. Um, the Islamic conception of grace, also fascinating, a little different, um, but, but interesting. Um, by the way, you'll never hear a Muslim say grace, so don't use Christianese when you approach that question, but they do have a conception of grace. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's important to recognize that um, a lot of our, our philosophical heritage does, was mediated by these Arab philosophers, right? And so um, it's great to read um, Averroes and, and some of these um, records that are really, really important for preserving that tradition to see um, the slant on these ideas that, that Arab philosophers have, where I think consistently, whether you're in the Quran or Ibn Tufail or Averroes or um, Arabi or, or whoever, um, you'll find that they, they play with a lot of the same ideas but come at it from a little bit of a different um, perspective. And so, I, you know, like Silas, I feel like it, it adds a, a complementary um, slant to the curriculum that, that is valuable, right? Um, it, to some extent, even just for recognizing what it is that you're actually um, saying and trying to, trying to explore. Right. I think that's a good way to uh, wrap up this conversation. There's a lot more that could be said, a lot more that could be explored, but that's the ground we'll cover today. Uh, thank you both for a very interesting conversation on these texts. Uh, we'll be back next week um, with uh, to continue our series through the CC curriculum. Uh, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>